Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, today covering the daily prayers included in Luther's small catechism. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. And Pastor Bestel, as we get going here today, as I set up, we're moving into the daily prayer section here of Luther's small catechism. And we've completed the six chief parts, what are pretty universally referred to as the six chief parts of the catechism. Of course, the Ten Commandments and the Creed and then the Lord's Prayer. And then we have the uh, sacraments there of baptism, confession, absolution and the Lord's Supper. And now as we move into this section of the small catechism, uh, the latest edition of the catechism out from Concordia Publishing House, published in 2017, I believe it was, that labels this as section two. And then we'll also have a section three, and, and then there's maybe a section four that we can also include as well. We certainly will in this series. But as these are a different section and outside of kind of those, again, six chief parts would seem to imply that these are the primary things, the most important things. But why include these things like daily prayers and then the table of duties would be section three and then Christian questions and their answer section four. Why are these things included in Luther's small catechism? What's the relationship to the six chief parts? Go ahead and take us away with a little bit of introduction into these sections, and especially as we move into section two here with the daily prayers. Go ahead, Pastor Preston. Happy to, Sean. It's great to uh, be with you again today with last week's show. uh, You're right, we conclude the six chief parts. And I think for a lot of uh, Lutherans in in the pew, and as they've been taught in confirmation classes and things, we put so much emphasis, rightly so, on those six chief parts, and we teach them very fully that To be honest, sometimes perhaps towards the end of the typical confirmation schedule and year, maybe we are rushing to get through these sections two, three, and four. Uh, Maybe pastors have in the past simply wanted to focus on those six chief parts and unfortunately perhaps overlooked sections two, three, and or what we call sections two, three, and four in the recent catechism. But they serve a very important purpose, and we understand the bigger picture, I think, when we realize that the six chief parts are not given just to say, by the way, this is what the truth of the Bible is, now do whatever you want with it. But rather, the truth of the Scripture, the truth of our doctrine, the truth of God's gifts of the sacraments, all of that truth serves a purpose for daily life, doesn't it? It's not just an issue of saying, to be a Lutheran means I'm going to have a spiritual unity with God 
in theory or on paper, and then I go through my daily life just doing whatever I want to do. But rather, those six chief parts give us the great doctrinal reality of God's truth for his church to live out in creation, to live out in daily life. And so sections two, or what we call perhaps sections two and sections three, daily prayers, table of duties, really focus us on now what does the Christian faith look like in daily life conduct and practice? And then section, uh, what might be called section four, the Christian questions with their answers, is really the opportunity on Saturday evening to reflect on all of this. So when you think of how this lays out, starting at page one of the catechism all the way through, right? If we see all of these things as interconnected and not say the six chief parts are really the important part, and all right, if we have time table of duty or daily prayers and table of duties, but if we see it all working together, we see you might say Luther's train of thought, but I think just more correctly, you see the scriptural truth of how God desires to have us live, that you have in the first section of the catechism, in, in the six chief parts, you have the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. Well, we've already said that that is law, gospel, and then the daily life of law, gospel, application, right? And if you take those three parts together, that is the word. And then if you look at the second three chief parts, as you've rightly said, baptism, absolution, the sacrament, the altar, there is the sacraments. And when you put those two things together, what are you going to end up with? It's going to produce a daily life of prayer and vocation. And so this also echoes and We'll look forward to getting into this in discussion, perhaps on why we worship the way we do, the liturgical life, and how it goes hand in hand with the catechism. But think about this in our hymnals. You know, if your parishioner opens the LSB and you see in the Lutheran service book that in the divine service you have the service of the word, and then you have the service of the sacrament, and those are two pillars within the one defined divine service. Right, And so already the catechism is echoing what is being given in the divine service. The divine service has this catechetical language to it that we'll, again, study perhaps in more detail. But so when you have the word and the sacrament put together, what is that meant to produce for daily life? Faith in God, prayer, and fervent love for one another, the table of duties. And so these sections are so important to understand why we should cherish the six chief parts. It doesn't help us cherish them as much to simply say, I cherish these six parts because God says to, and God makes these promises, but I don't know what they have to do with daily life, right? That doesn't really help the common Christian to know why saying I am a Lutheran is an everyday reality. But to be able to say, I am a Lutheran and God has given me his word and his sacraments that I might live a life of prayer and vocation right? It's not just a spiritual reality in the eternal realms, though that is the ultimate goal, and that is that which we press forward to, as St. Paul says. And yet there's a very daily life, present tense, this world aspect to the catechism. And it's now seen in these sections two and three of saying, how do we live this life of faith in God and fervent love toward one another? Well, section two, daily prayers, faith in God. Section three, table of duties, vocation. 
And then at the end of the week, we can use what might be called section four, the Christian questions and their answers, to reflect in preparation of the divine service, in preparation of going to God in joyful repentance, knowing that he's a loving God who will forgive us and strengthen us and sustain us. That section four then helps us reflect on everything in what we might call sections one, two, and three. So in regards to section two specifically, where the Lord's Prayer teaches us the content and doctrine of prayer, you might say that we need this section because this section teaches us the habit and customs of prayer. Uh, So Yes, it's understandable if people say, well, I don't know why we talk about prayer again, because we already talked about prayer in the third chief part. But here we're actually talking about the practice of it and helpful hints along the way, tools along the way, as we'll get into in a few minutes, that Luther says, you know, here are helpful habits and customs to keep us in a prayer life. And then right within the prayers that he gives in these sections, he sort of teaches us how theology plays out in daily life. And we'll see that as we go through this section here today. And so we can glean why those habits and customs are beneficial to maintain. And I would also say just in introduction that this little section here is probably the easiest way to begin a devotional habit in life. You know, I will often have members come and say, you know, pastor, I want to do better at a devotional life. I admit that I really struggle with it and I try to get started and then I fail miserably and I just quit. And well, you know, I I often will ask, well, what did you do to try and start? And, you know, sometimes you'll get the answer. Well, I started in Genesis one and I was doing really well until I got to like the book of Leviticus and then I just gave up. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that that's the best way to start a devotional habit in life. And so Rather than having these grandiose notions of starting grand and just being an amazing Christian who can always do these awesome daily devotions, start simple, right? Remember, Luther is writing to people that he says, you know, I've got to teach them what it means to live in the joy and simplicity of the Christian faith. And so far from some pietistic notion that you need some amazing monastic prayer dedication to feel good about your prayer life. And instead of then feeling overwhelmed by that devotional life or frustrated by the inability to keep it, right, saying to myself, well, yeah, when I get started, I have to start at one hour a day. Uh, certainly as a pastor, I would love if all families were able to do an hour of devotions every day. That would be a great thing for their own benefit. But we have to be realistic as those with old Adam still around our neck. Uh, We have to be realistic with what we can start with. Let's start with simple things. And over time, we will get better at understanding that having created a small habit, I can dedicate a little bit more time to it without feeling threatened by the old Adam that somehow I'm losing out on higher priorities in other aspects of life. So start simple. Start with this daily prayers section and what Luther teaches us in it. And as we go through it, I think one will be amazed at just how broad the daily prayer life is in this little section and just how much Luther teaches us in the simplicity of the faith and the things that we already know, right? Cherish the Ten Commandments, cherish the Apostles' Creed, cherish the Lord's Prayer as we already know them and say, oh, well, I I know that. Uh, Let me go on to something bigger and better. 
But Luther paints a wonderful picture for us of a prayer life that totally depends upon and rejoices in depending upon and just sort of dwelling in the beauty of the relationship between Ten Commandments, Apostles' Creed, and Lord's Prayer. And so it's very simple to start a devotional life. It's very simple to enjoy and appreciate the devotional life. And this little section here in the Catechism teaches us how to do this. All right, so let's go ahead and get into it then here, starting with the morning prayer section. And I'm going to read from Luther's small catechism, of course, but also the italicized instructions, if you will, that go along with the daily prayers. And I'm sure, Pastor Besso, you'll give us some great insight as to why those are very good to include here as well. So not just reading the prayers that Martin Luther offers to us here, starting with the morning prayer, but also the instructions that go along with it. So it begins with the morning prayer saying this, In the morning, when you get up, make the sign of the Holy Cross and say, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Then kneeling or standing, repeat the creed and the Lord's Prayer. If you choose, you may also say this little prayer. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil that all my doings and life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. And then go fully to your work, singing a hymn like that of the Ten Commandments, or whatever your devotion may suggest. Thus far, Martin Luther's small catechism, the morning prayer section under the daily prayers, All right, Pastor Bessel, go ahead and give us some good insights into how, as you said there, we can use the morning prayer as our devotional habit and in our Christian life. I appreciate, Sean, that you read what is included as sort of instruction, if you will, because the instruction is important. It shows us that the head of household, the pastor, the individual who's taking up these customs, that there is something to learn from customs from bodily discipline and training, just as we saw in the sixth chief part about the reference to bodily training and preparation for the sacrament, bodily discipline of fasting and other bodily preparation. That's certainly true also with daily prayers, that if someone says, well, I'll just pray while I'm driving the car down the road on my way to work. It's not that that can't happen, but you're just going to get distracted very easily. And so Luther is right to include very specific forms of bodily discipline and training. And he starts with, make the sign of the Holy Cross, right? This was the sign given you in your baptism. It reminds you immediately that all of daily life begins with your baptismal identity, that every day when you wake up, you can look in the mirror and say, I'm a baptized child of God, right? There is your great identity. You do not have to worry about what your classmates say, what your employer says, what your employees think of you as a boss. You live every vocation with that confidence of being a baptized child of God. And so when you wake up, make the sign of the Holy Cross. Uh, We've spent, it seems like generations, having to defend this notion that the sign of the cross is not Roman Catholic. I hope we're at a point, and I'm glad to see it all around me in various settings where, where I'm with, whether it be Christians at my congregation or fellow Lutherans at other congregations. I'm glad to see all around us that it seems that people have been taught well 
that the sign of the Holy Cross is not somehow a Roman Catholic holdover, that we ought not be afraid of it. So hopefully we can just put that conversation to rest and just rejoice in this admonition and instruction. Make the sign of the Holy Cross, not as a matter of righteousness, but as a matter of teaching. And so Luther says, make the sign of the cross. And then he goes on, repeat over yourself your baptismal triune name identity. So, of course, not just making the sign of the cross, but always in the context of the words, right? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There's your baptismal triune name identity. But then he goes on and he refers to more bodily discipline than kneeling or standing. Well, why kneeling or standing? Why not sitting? Who cares if I'm sitting? Who cares if I'm laying down? Why just kneeling or standing? Remember that these are, one, signs of reverence in a way that perhaps we might say sitting and laying down isn't necessarily a sign of reverence. Uh, you know, in, in a Sunday morning church service, for example, most often when you pray, most often you are standing in prayer. Maybe some congregations kneel in prayer. Uh, we've already talked about when you come to the altar of God, most Lutherans come and kneel. Some Lutherans come and stand. But no one comes and sits down, you know, a sort of Indian cross-leg style or however they refer to that now. Uh, but no one sits in cross-leg style and says, I'll just sort of relax here and get the things of God. Or, or no one comes up and just sort of lazily lays down by the altar of God. Same thing then in prayer. This is not just you going through motions and reminding yourself that you're a Christian. You are coming before God. He is giving you invitation to literally come before him in prayer and voice your concerns to him, voice your needs to him, make your requests known to God. And so the standing and the kneeling in prayer life is the same bodily discipline to remind you, I'm just as, quote unquote, near to God in this prayer as I am when I come before the altar of God and I kneel, or as when I stand in church and pray. And so that bodily discipline is very helpful. You know, uh, if you will just try it once, I know most of us, when we go to uh, dinner tables, most of us sit at the table and pray together. Nothing wrong at all with that. That can be a good, pious bodily discipline and everyone just quietly coming to the table, quietly preparing for the table prayer, and then having the prayer as you all sit together. Maybe your family has other customs like holding hands together. Certainly fine and good. Uh, why does Luther include this one? Just once. Try standing at the table rather than sitting. And it's remarkable to see what bodily training and discipline does to sort of sharpen our mind's focus on what we are doing and that this is actually us coming before God and not just going through pious customs because that's our Christian tradition. It's not about pious customs and it's not about Christian tradition. It's about actually speaking to God. And though bodily discipline doesn't make that more true, it does teach us and remind us of what is actually happening in this moment. So then he goes on and he says, kneeling or standing, repeat the creed and the Lord's prayer. If you choose, you may also say this little prayer. We'll get to the little prayer in a second. But notice the creed and the Lord's prayer. Well, the creed teaches us who our loving God is, right? My creator, redeemer, sanctifier. This defines not just my Sunday morning relationship with him. It defines all of daily life for me, that I live in the joy of this gracious God, the gospel, if you will. But then also the Lord's Prayer, because as we said when we studied the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer teaches us daily Christian life lived out in the joy of law and gospel. And so as we look through, remember the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, and we compared 
the Lord's Prayer to the Ten Commandments and saw how they all interwove together. And then that tension, if you will, between the two, the prayer of the Lord's Prayer and yet the holiness of the Ten and the reality that we don't keep those as we ought. Nevertheless, then there was a calm that came because it was all tied together by the joy of the creed and saying, I have a merciful God who then, therefore, I can confidently appeal to and say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so as we pray in this section, as we pray the creed, I have this gracious, loving God. And as we pray the Lord's Prayer, here is my gracious God's holy will that I desire to keep and reflect on that at all in daily life, it prepares us for the day ahead, doesn't it? And so we pray the creed in the Lord's Prayer, and then notice the theology of the little prayer that he gives us, the morning prayer that he gives us. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. That's a great phrase, because you say, well, what do you mean, keep me from danger at night? I was just sleeping. But that's sort of the point, isn't it? That when you think about this, it's the oddest thing in the world to think about the notion that when you're sleeping, so is 99% of the society around you, right? Everyone is asleep at the same time. You're all just laying there. Uh, if you've ever, you know, Pastor Smith or, or dear listener, if you've ever had bouts of insomnia, I've had some cases of having to sort of wrestle to sleep at night. And it is the weirdest feeling in the whole world at 2.30, 3.30 in the morning to just look out into the darkness of night and know that all of your neighbors around you are just laying in a bed and nobody's awake except you. It's just an odd feeling. But as Luther rightly points out, it's also in a sense when we're the most vulnerable, that we most depend upon God caring for us and protecting us because we're just laying there. Especially in Luther's day when you had houses that didn't have you know, security systems and very safe locks. And, you know, the peasants and the poor people lived in homes that probably, you know, at times had things like sticks and hay that served as their roof. That's not a very secure place to be at night. And so though we feel like our security is in the fortress of our home, you know, we've all got locks and deadbolts and security systems and, you know, whatever else you might have on your home, guard dogs, uh, you know, things like that. Nevertheless, Luther rightly teaches us, no, it's God who cares for us even while we sleep, who watches over us even while we sleep, so that the next morning we so, in a sense, we almost take it for granted. We just wake up and never realize that, you know, anything could have struck that night, and I might not have known it. Uh, you know, we all sit with our weather radios when there's bad tornado weather coming or whatever, and yet we still go to sleep. Uh, we still go to sleep knowing that God will care for me and God will protect me. And so this is a wonderful thing in Luther's morning prayer to remind us we should thank God for that. We should thank God that we wake up the next morning safe from whatever harm and danger could have befallen us because we just were totally oblivious to any of it, and yet we could sleep peacefully knowing that we are in his tender care. So then he goes on and he says, keep me also this day from sin and every evil. That's a strong statement, isn't it? That our focus should be, as we go out into the world out there, it should be the reality of sin and evil in the world, that there is sin and evil in the world and that we can't protect ourselves from it. And yet think of how often the epistles are pointing out, beware of this, right? Beware of false prophets. Beware of those who have fallen from the faith. Do not drift away. And yet also beware of yourself, right? Uh, think of uh, not too many weeks ago, we had the uh, reading in the three-year lectionary about 
if your hand causes you to sin, if your foot causes you to sin, your own old Adam can cause you problems. And so we need God's safekeeping from sin, from myself, but also from every evil that's out there. And the world is truly an evil place, even though it is God's creation, it is a fallen creation. Uh, and so I, maybe I should rephrase that. The sin-laden reality of the creation is evil, that it's not a lot of neutrality between good and evil. There's just good and evil. And so God is there to protect us from evil. The doctrine is there to teach us to beware of evil. And yet we're right to petition God and to plead and say, my entire life depends upon you safeguarding me, safeguarding me from myself and safeguarding me from all that would harm me, sin and every evil. And he goes on and he says that all my doings in life may please you. Notice how there's sort of a third function of the law reality here, right? This is sort of a sanctification petition saying, I just want my life to please God. I do not live my daily life as a secularist. I live my daily life in joy of God's holy will. And therefore, help me to do that. Help me to please you. The holy will of God is good. Or as St. Paul says it in Romans chapter 7, I agree with the law that it is good. And therefore, this is my desire as I go forward in my, my day ahead, is not to live according to my will, not to live according to the world's will, but to live according to God's will. Then he says, into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. That's an interesting one, especially notice that here again, just as in the first article of the creed, Luther talks about the fact that we commend ourselves to God, my body and my soul. But then the all things has no little word my in front of it. Whatever daily bread stuff we have is not ours as ownership. It's simply, if you will, on loan from God, he daily provides it. But what he has given me is my body and my soul. And my body and my soul I commend to him and I entrust to his good care and keeping even as I realize that all that he provides me in daily life to care for my body and soul, all of those material things are, in a sense, neither here nor there. Today, he might give them to me. Tomorrow, he might not. And that's fine. I commend that to his care and keeping as well. I do not have to chase after that. But rather, wherever my treasure is, there my heart is also. My treasure is in the heavenly realms, right? My treasure is in being a child of God. And therefore, I can rejoice in making use of daily bread as God has given it to me. And yet I don't have to be bitter when he says, you know what, I'm taking that daily bread away because I have better plans for you. And so I commend everything to God as I go about my daily life. I don't go about my daily life to, as you know, some of the Americana sayings are, to run the rat race, to uh, bring home the bacon, all of these different things that just talk about the idea of trying to get ahead in life. Certainly we work as God gave us to do in the perfection of creation, to work. And yet we are not working to sustain my own life, but rather we're working for the benefit of our neighbor, our loved ones around us, wife, children, the benefit of our employer. I'm going to be a good employee, the benefit of my neighbors in various aspects. But I thank God and I entrust to him not only my body and soul that he has given to me, but all of the other things out there that he provides for my use. Then lastly, I think in the prayer here, let your holy angel be with me that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Uh, keep in mind that the sanctification of daily life is about the Lord protecting me from me 
And it's not so much about me overcoming all adversity for God. It's about me wrestling in cooperation with the Holy Spirit as God protects me in daily life. And so this prayer, this morning prayer, sets up for us what the day ahead is going to be focused on. It's going to be focused on the joy of living as God would have me live. And that's why, if you notice the little italics after the prayer, notice that Luther says, then go joyfully to your work, singing a hymn, right? The hymnody's use is to teach and meditate upon God's word. We should love the hymnody because of its teaching abilities, because of its meditative qualities. Pastors, this is why you choose hymns in the service, to reflect the readings, the sermon, the theme of the day. And you don't just say, oh, well, I know that you know, Mrs. Smith really loves this hymn and it's her birthday, so let's sing this for Mrs. Smith. Well, okay, fine. But at the same time, we want hymns that are going to teach the theme of the day, teach the lesson of the day, meditate upon God's Word. And we do that not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week, right? Dear Christian, hymnody is better than secular music. That doesn't mean I don't like secular music. I love it. I, I enjoy, I listen to rock and roll, right? 70s rock, like some folk music, uh, John Denver, that type of stuff. But when you actually listen to the words, hymnody is far superior. And we ought benefit from listening to that throughout the week. It is very beneficial for us, as Luther instructs us, go about singing a hymn. And notice what he says, like that of the Ten Commandments. Why the Ten Commandments? Well, again, think about it at the beginning of the day. Think about its use with the Creed and the Lord's Prayer. Ten Commandments law, Creed gospel, Lord's Prayer, daily life according to law and gospel. And so as one who now has been comforted by the Creed to know that I, in my baptismal identity, have this gracious God and have been instructed by the Lord's Prayer how to go forward, then I'm going to meditate upon the Ten Commandments as my joy and my desire to love and cherish and keep them. And therefore, the morning prayer gets us started very well in a very simple devotional way for the day ahead. Absolutely. Well said on all of that great instruction for forming and shaping our devotional life as we live this out. We need to go ahead and take a break here. But when we come back, we'll also see how this devotional life is played out also in the evening with the evening prayer and asking a blessing before a meal and returning thanks after a meal. Great teaching yet to come on the other side of the break on those things for our prayer and devotional life as well. With our catechist, Pastor Mark Vestal, I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Brady Finnern of Thy Strong Word. Join us to be renewed and refreshed by God's Word and to be pointed to our resurrected Lord Jesus every weekday from 11 to noon, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. matters as we continue our catechist series with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith. And today we are looking at section two of Luther's small catechism, the section on daily prayers, which immediately follows 
the six chief parts and Pastor Bessel, you set up very well for us. The connection between these, well, all of the sections, sections two, three, and four, the daily prayers, table of duties, and then the Christian questions and answers in their relation to the six chief parts. And I especially like the connection that you set up for us in the first segment of today's show with the connection of the daily prayers kind of being the living out of our Christian faith and life as taught in the six chief parts, especially in our prayer and devotional life. Great teaching on that. And we'll go ahead and continue here then with the evening prayer. And again, here I'm reading from Luther's Small Catechism, and I'm including the italicized instructions that just so helpfully form and shape our prayer and devotional life there as well. So this is evening prayer. In the evening, when you go to bed, make the sign of the Holy Cross and say, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Then kneeling or standing, repeat the creed and the Lord's Prayer. If you choose, you may also say this little prayer. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Then go to sleep at once and in good cheer. All right, this far, Luther's small catechism on the evening prayer. All right, Pastor Bestel, I love the italics instructions. The last part there, it just brings such peace and comfort to me. And I use it also at visitation with those who are on their deathbed or approaching that. You can go to sleep at once and in good cheer. Just beautiful words there, but beautiful words and instruction for our Christian prayer and devotional life here as well. So go ahead and take us away, Pastor Bessel. Yeah, Sean, I love teaching this section of the catechism and especially the evening prayer because you sort of see all the light bulbs popping with everyone when you compare the morning prayer to the evening prayer and you see how Luther's teaching keeps us focused on this wonderful reality of living in the joy of God's grace and holy will 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, all of our days, and you're absolutely right, even down to that dying day in which we can have the utmost confidence and we can live in peace and we can die in peace and in good cheer because we know that our God cares for us, loves us as our creator, redeemer, sanctifier. So as we go through the evening prayer, the listener now will be able to you know, notice that a lot of the evening prayers is very similar to the morning prayer, including a lot of the instruction. But that's why you can highlight the differences and say, ah, look how this brings out the theology of the day. Okay. So going through right away, you'll notice a lot of similarities. In the evening, when you go to bed, make the sign of the Holy Cross. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So there you go. Just as I woke up as a baptized child of God, I'm going to bed as the baptized child of God. We never outgrow the joy of being a baptized child of God. When you get confirmed, that doesn't mean that baptism no longer matters all that much or that the discussion of baptism is for pre-confirmed children but post-confirmation adults don't rejoice in being a baptized child of God. The great theologians of the centuries, right? Martin Luther himself knows nothing better than to rejoice in and identify himself as being a baptized child of God. So then kneeling or standing, there's that bodily discipline again. And again, this is really great, I think, for the evening prayer, because when you're going to bed at night, 
the last thing you want to do is kneel or stand. You're tired. You just want to flop into bed. And yet Luther, I think, rightly knows that if we flop into bed, we're going to go to sleep before we finish the prayer. And out of reverence for God, but also out of focus and devotion in the prayer, it is better bodily training and discipline to say, no, my body can hold out another one minute while I say my prayers before going to bed. Okay, and I, and I would encourage all Christians to do that, to not just flop into bed and try to say prayers on your pillow because you're going to fall asleep. Uh, I say it from experience, but rather kneel or stand, say your prayers, and then go to bed and be of good cheer. So then going on, he says, repeat the creed, the Lord's Prayer. Again, if you choose, you may also say this little prayer. He says, depend upon the creed in the Lord's Prayer. Remember, the creed is nothing other than a compilation of various phrases from the Scripture. The Lord's Prayer, obviously, the words of Jesus himself. So he says, depend upon the words of Scripture, creed and Lord's Prayer. If you choose, you can also add this other little prayer, but he definitely puts the emphasis on the words of Scripture in the creed and the Lord's Prayer. So then he goes on, and we recognize these words from the morning prayer. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have all of a sudden graciously kept me this day. Well, why would he add that word graciously in the evening when he doesn't include it in the morning? I think there are two reasons. One, because there's so many more things that can harm us throughout the day. And uh, as we talked about the idea of laying still all night and that there is harm and danger at night, and yet certainly we know all the potential evils out there during the day, all the potential things that would tempt us and cause us to go astray during the day. But I think the second point is the more direct reason that he includes the term graciously, because in the evening prayer, he teaches us to reflect back on the day and notice that we have to repent of our sins and that it is only by God's grace that we have been kept through this, because if he were a vindictive God or if he were just to exact judgment and punishment on us, we wouldn't make it past 7.30 in the morning before being condemned for our sins. And yet here we are at the end of the day, and God in his patience and graciousness and mercy has, in a sense, endured our sins and now brought us back to the point of you know meditating upon, reflecting upon the day, and realizing I have things to repent of, and yet God has been gracious to me in bringing me to this point that I may now continue in prayer and ask for forgiveness, right? So how does the prayer continue? That you have graciously kept me this day, and I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong, right? Another great point for us as Christians that sometimes as Lutherans, we get so focused on original sin and saying, oh, I'm a poor, miserable sinner that we forget to wrestle with the actual sins that happen in daily life. While we ought never use the idea of original sin, the idea of old Adam about our neck, as excuse to not wrestle with the individual sins. Yes, these individual sins are a manifestation of a greater problem, and yet, as baptism has said, you are no longer identified by the old Adam, but by the new, now I can wrestle, as St. Paul does in Romans chapter 7. And I can wrestle with these actual individual sins of daily life. And at the end of the day, I can pray to the gracious God to forgive my sins. So uh, as the prayer goes on, I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. Again, there's that word graciously again. I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve to be able to go to bed with confidence that I'm going to wake up tomorrow. I don't deserve any of that, but I have a gracious and loving God 
and therefore I can appeal to him with confidence, right? And then it goes on for into your hands, I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. There's the same reality we talked about at the beginning of the day, right? At the end of the day, my body still is given by God to me as his gift to me. My soul is still mine and, you know, I commend it to God's care and keeping. And then the all things that at the end of the day, no matter how much stress I've had in daily life about the job, about paycheck, about uh, mortgage, whatever it is, all of those things I commend to God at the end of the day. I've worked as if it depended upon me, and now it's time to pray knowing that it all depends upon God. And therefore, I can, even regarding those stressors of life, like mortgage, car payment, whatever it is, at the end of the day, I don't have to lose sleep over those things. I've done what I can during this day, and it's part of the daily bread, and therefore, why worry about it for tomorrow? I might as well just commend it back to God and say, you are the one who gives me all daily bread anyway. And so I'm commending everything to you, knowing that there are still sort of, if you will, loose strings to tie and I's to dot and T's to cross, uh, all of those things that I know are coming tomorrow. Nevertheless, I've done what I can for today, but more importantly, I can go to bed appealing to your grace and mercy and with confidence that you're going to provide me whatever daily bread I need for tomorrow. Even if that which I've worked for today has been taken from me, tomorrow God will still provide for me what he knows is best. And so I commend all things to God as I go to sleep at night. And then it says, let your holy angel be with me that the evil foe may have no power over me. Same as in the beginning of the day, right? The only thing I would say that I didn't really say about this at the beginning is that notice how even in this prayer, Luther again reminds us of the same thing that Jesus reminds us of in the Lord's Prayer. The evil foe is real. We ought not buy into this Western notion that there is no spiritual realm out there and all that it is is a bunch of materialism. But rather the evil foe, the wrestling against dark forces, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, as the apostle says, that is very real. And therefore, both in the Lord's Prayer and then in this little prayer, and both morning and evening, we're right to appeal to that and know that we'd have no chance against the evil foe, except that we have this loving, merciful God who defends me so well and so perfectly that the evil foe may have no power over me. But then those words that you rightly highlighted at the beginning of this segment, then go to sleep at once and in good cheer. And notice what is missing in this section that was in the morning prayer. What happened to the Ten Commandments? They're gone. They're not here. Why doesn't he say, then go to sleep thinking about the Ten Commandments? It's because if you go to sleep meditating upon the Ten Commandments at the end of the day, all you're going to think about is how poorly you have not kept them, right? How poorly you have done in trying to keep them throughout the day. And then you're going to wrestle, you're going to be anxious, you're going to be sleepless. And so Luther says, no, don't think about the Ten Commandments now because they can no longer accuse you. We think about them at the beginning of the day with the strong desire to do God's will. And yet, as we reflect on it in the evening prayer, we look back on the day and we say, boy, I just failed miserably. And yet I have a gracious and loving God who is patient with me. And therefore, when we know that we have forgiveness and that we have a clear conscience before God, then the evening is not the time to dwell on the Ten Commandments. You know, when, when we're dwelling on them actively in the morning, our activeness 
or our busyness, if you will, keeps us focused on what we are to do. But when you have time to dwell on them, sort of passively, if you will, that's when you start to actually examine whether or not you have done what you are to do. And that's when you really grow anxious about it and you really feel the shame, the guilt, the embarrassment of it all. And therefore, at the end of the day, don't think about the Ten Commandments, but rather take great cheer that you are a forgiven, baptized child of God, that God's holy will has been carried on despite our imperfections, and that he will see us through to tomorrow. And therefore, not thinking about the Ten Commandments, but rather rejoicing in who my God is and rejoicing in my forgiveness, I can simply lay my head down on my pillow without a care in the world, quite literally, without a care in the world, and I can just go to sleep at once and be of good cheer. This is exactly, and you rightly point this out, Sean, that this is exactly what we are practicing every night for the sake of when it finally comes to our earthly end on that last day this side of heaven that as we have practiced it every night, then when it is time to close my eyes and breathe my last, I can do so with a clear conscience, rejoicing in the forgiveness of sins, perhaps that same forgiveness that has just been declared over me by the pastor at my bedside, or fed to me by the pastor in the Holy Supper, or proclaimed to me through the Holy Word. I can rejoice in that forgiveness I have just received, and then I need not think about the accusations of the law, because now There is no enmity between me and God's holy law. There is no bad conscience. I'm no longer the enemy of the law, but rather now as a forgiven child of God, the law as a good teacher and discipline has done its work to carry me to this point, and the gospel has forgiven me, and all of that has prepared me to finally, with a clear conscience, simply close my eyes and go to sleep in good cheer, knowing that I will wake up on the other side of heaven. So this evening prayer is a wonderful tool both for daily life and then also in preparation for the life of the world to come. I like what you bring out there that in those words that we would commend myself, my body and soul and all things that you made the connection to commending to God our daily bread, right? As we pray in the Lord's prayer. And I think that's a beautiful connection then also to the other two prayers that are included in this section under the daily prayers of asking a blessing before a meal and then also returning thanks after a meal, that we would also there very specifically ask these blessings and return thanks for the daily bread that we receive in terms of the food for our body. So I'm going to go ahead and take these together and read these and then turn it over to you for our instruction and catechesis on that. So this is asking a blessing before a meal. The eyes of all look to you, O Lord, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. And that comes from Psalm 145, verses 15 through 16. And then it gives the instruction, Then shall be said the Lord's Prayer and the following, Lord God, Heavenly Father, bless us and these your gifts which we receive from your bountiful goodness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And then also returning thanks after a meal. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. He gives food to every creature. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. That comes from Psalm 136, verse 1, and Psalm 25, and Psalm 147, verses 9 through 11. Then he gives the instruction, Then shall be said the Lord's Prayer in the following. We thank you, Lord God, Heavenly Father for all your benefits, 
through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. All right, thus concludes the section on daily prayers. Go ahead and give us our instruction and catechesis here, Pastor Bestel, on asking a blessing before a meal and returning thanks after a meal. So because time is short here, I know that everyone thinks that we know how to pray at the table because we do it so much. And yet notice how much we can learn from Luther in this little section. First, what is the bodily discipline that he mentions here? He mentions the idea of going to the table reverently, right? That we don't just hastily come in, grab our food and run. Or, you know, he, of course, had no concept of a drive-through meal at all. But, you know, how easy is it to pray reverently when you get your drive-through McDonald's and eat on the road? Probably not that simple, not that easy. And so he does hint, hey, take your time and be reverent and understand that this is just as much a gift from God as everything else. And so reverently come to the table, fold your hands, keep your hands from grabbing for the food, right? Don't just run up, rub it up, dub, thanks for the grub, and start eating, but rather understand that this temporal gift is from the same divine source, right? In a sense, this is God's gift to be received rightly in the same way that the divine feast is. So the divine feast on Sunday morning has the same divine source as this temporal feast, whether it be Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, or lunch or dinner or whatever. But this is a temporal benefit from him who gives the eternal benefit in the greater feast that demands all reverence. And so if we're going to revere God in that spiritual feast, if you will, in that eternal feast of Christ's very body and blood, then why would we not also deal with him reverently when he is willing to give us even the manna that supports us through our wilderness wanderings in daily terms? So then he includes Psalm 145 in here wonderful proclamation of God's proper and properly timed provision to all. And it might remind us of the section of the Catechism that reminds us even all the wicked, right? The eyes of all look to you, O Lord, and you give them their food at the proper time. All creation should look to God because all creation depends upon God. Even the wicked depend upon God. And so as we recognize this, as the Catechism teaches us elsewhere, that we then ought receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. And then notice the little instruction, then shall be said the Lord's Prayer. Now, if you're noticing this, we said the Lord's Prayer in the morning, we said the Lord's Prayer in the evening, and now he encourages us to say the Lord's Prayer every time we eat a meal. We're up to five times a day that we're praying the Lord's Prayer. We'll get back to that in a minute. Last thing I would say on asking a blessing, we all know and there's certainly nothing wrong with it. We all know that what we call the common table prayer, come Lord Jesus, be our guest, let thy gifts to us be blessed. Certainly a wonderful prayer, commend its use for everyone. And yet at the same time, be aware of your old Adam. Be aware that as you learn table prayers and things, at first we learn them for the basics of them, just to get us into the habit, just to teach our kids to get into the habit. And yet notice in the common table prayer, the rhyming rhythm of the prayer that might, over time, lead us to become somewhat indifferent or irreverent, to think that it's sort of child's play. And so I always encourage the parents of our congregation, when the children are very young and need something easy to learn, sure, start with the common table prayer that rhymes because that's easy for them to remember. But very quickly, they can learn this table prayer of Luther. And it, again, it's not that the rhyming is sinful, but that we have to recognize as old Adam, as still having old Adam about our neck, that we sinners 
can start to convince ourselves that prayer isn't real, that prayer isn't adult-like, that prayer is childish because it rhymes, right? We don't rhyme in our daily conversation with anybody else. In fact, when we accidentally do, sometimes we sort of giggle uh, and say, oh, that was sort of silly how our conversation rhymed. And so why, you know, why would we not, in a sense, why would old Adam not be tempted to think that it trivializes prayer before God and that maybe prayer isn't real and that we're just going through the motions uh, when we've got rhyming prayers? So again, it's not that it's wrong, but just be aware of the inclination of old Adam to get the upper hand there in the prayer life because he tries to trivialize the rhythmic motion of that common table prayer. But Luther's table prayer here is a wonderful one. Lord God, Heavenly Father, bless us in these thy gifts, which we receive from thy bountiful goodness through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then when we get to the returning thanks, again, reverently with folded hands, right? We don't eat the meal and then run away, but rather we are reminded anew that this comes from God. Psalm 136, 147, we know the first line there very well. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. We've got that even on, you know, little artwork all throughout our kitchens, perhaps. But consider the importance of the remaining lines. He provides food for the cattle and the young ravens. In other words, he is God over all creation. He alone makes all things live, breathe, and have their being. Another one, his pleasure is not in the strength of the horse nor in the legs of a man. And if that's the case, then why would we, now well-fed and nourished, turn our attention to hoping in such temporal things, in making them our God and our little idols, right? Trying to please men, trying to uh, hope in the strength of man or in the strength of the horse and all things that supposedly serve us. Why would we go from this meal in which we just received and were reminded of the God who provides us all of this daily bread? We just received his daily bread and we're reminded of him and his goodness toward us. Why would we now turn from this and chase after idols, right? Rather, as the psalm says, the Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. And then notice after the returning thanks, then shall be said the Lord's prayer. Notice we're now at eight times a day that you say the Lord's prayer. This is how beautiful a prayer this is, uh, as we talked about when we talked about it in the discussion in the third chief part. Christ gave us this prayer. How do you improve upon it? But also notice some beautiful and maybe happy coincidences here. Is it just a happy coincidence that we, because we eat three meals a day, we would then pray this eight times a day? And that number eight, of course, reminds us of the new creation, which is what we're pushing on toward. It's also a great reminder that since the Lord's Prayer is always the plural prayer, right? We're always praying for us and for our. Then if we're praying this eight times a day and every other Christian around the world is praying this multiple times a day and they're eating meals at different hours than we are because they're in different time zones and if they're going to bed and waking up at different times than we are because they're in different time zones. In other words, 24 hours a day, we have Christians praying for us even more than we would pray for ourselves, which means that we can rejoice in praying for them and not just for ourselves. And so every Christian can have that great joy that the whole church all the way around the world, the four corners of the earth, the whole church is praying for each other. And the Lord is hearing every one of those prayers and answering those prayers as he knows best for each and every individual Christian and for the church as a whole. And so that final prayer, thanking God for all his benefits, we thank you, Lord God, Heavenly Father, for all your benefits. 
through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit forever and ever. That conclusion reminding us to look to the things that are above, not just to dwell on temporal life, but to look to those things that are above, just as this conclusion sort of reminds us of that conclusion we use on a Sunday morning when the prayer of the church prays not only for temporal things, but prepares for that divine meal, prepares for that moment of sharing in all the heavenly things that are above. So a beautiful prayer life in daily prayers that Luther sets forth for us here. And every Christian now can look at this whole section and say, you know, why would I not just be content in starting my devotional life with this? Yes, hopefully as I go forward, I take more time to rejoice in searching the scriptures, studying the scriptures, reading the scriptures. But I have so much to do just in this little section of prayer life that I can rejoice in the wonderful theology of it and how it keeps me grounded in the God of the creed, who is my creator, redeemer, and sanctifier, who teaches me his holy will and allows me to go about my day in the joy of the Ten Commandments, and then at the end of the day, sleep at peace in the forgiveness of sins. Absolutely beautiful said there, and great encouragement for us today as well. And having the daily prayer section of the small catechism really form and shape our Christian prayer and devotional life. Thank you so much from our catechist, Pastor Mark Festel, for that great catechesis and encouragement for us here today. That's unfortunately all the time that we have for today, and that wraps up section two of the Luther Small Catechism. Next week, we will pick up section three of Luther's small catechism, the section on the table of duties, looking at our Christian vocation then, our life in this world as well. So please join us for that. Thank you for stopping by today, dear listener. Until next time, keep confessing, church.